Let's uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today. We ask, and of course every day, but we ask you to inspire us to really understand not only what you are saying through the prophet Isaiah, but how it applies to us today, because so much of the circumstances are the same. We really need your guidance and inspiration, uh, something that wasn't accepted in those days. Uh, help us, Lord, to understand the implications and the applications of your word as we read it. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. What I said is in that little brief prayer is is an accurate statement because you've got to understand that as you read scripture, if you read it just as history, then that's all you're going to get is history. You have to read it as God's word speaking to you about the times of the past but how it applies to you today. And so much of what we will read in Isaiah does apply to us today. Uh, and so that is what you should be looking for, is how it applies to you. Okay. Now, uh, a couple of people have said that they had a little difficulty in understanding uh, chapter 40. So I want to review a little of that uh, to sort of get everybody on the same page and to understand where we are. The scene, of course, is in Babylon. And the whole idea is God is going to release the exiles, the Jewish exiles, who have been in Babylon now for 50 or 60 years, depending on which conquest they got caught in. All right. But they are not released yet. Okay. We know that Cyrus the Great, we know from other sources, that Cyrus the Great, the Persian, overcame uh, and conquered the Babylonians in the year 539 uh, B.C. Now, that didn't mean the day after he finished conquering them that he said, okay, you know, you Jewish people, you can go home. Uh, it takes time, okay? And so what we are reading here is the preparation, the announcement, first of all, uh, right in the beginning of chapter 40, and then the preparation uh for the people to leave. Now, not all of the people left. A lot of them felt that they wanted to stay there, particularly those younger people who were born in Babylon. Remember, over a period of 50, 60 years, a lot of the elderly who were taking there, taken there from Jerusalem died out. And there were a number of Jewish people born there. So they didn't know anything about Israel uh, or Judah or Jerusalem except what they heard from 
uh, their elders. And so many of them were not that interested. The same thing happened way back in Egypt at the time of Moses. And that is sort of a normal progression. But what they were missing out, what the young people were missing out, was what was God's intention? What was God asking of them? And if you ignore that, then you're missing out on the best part. And that is true today. We are all being asked to do something in the furtherance of God's plan of salvation through the church. And if we totally ignore our role in God's plan of salvation, you're ignoring the best part of this life. And, unfortunately, there will be severe consequences later on. And for these people, this is kind of what the prophet is telling them, that there will be consequences. They've got to make changes as they depart from Babylon and return to Judah. Remember, they returned to Judah, not just Jerusalem. And as they returned to Judah, just a moment, check. As they returned to Judah, they became known as the Judahites for a while. All right? Because the whole idea of ites falls in line with the way they and other nations were recognized at the time. They came from the land of Judah, therefore they were called Judahites. Later on, uh, not too much later on, but we don't know exactly when, uh, they stopped the, the Judahite problem and became Jews. So the word Jew comes not from Jerusalem, as many people think, but from the word Judah, which was the total province in which Jerusalem, of course, was the capital. Chet, you had a question? Yeah, the question uh, is a, a commonly asked question because it, it conjures up in your mind from a variety of sources as to what kind of life did they lead. Well, we don't know all the details, all right? And much of what we do know comes from other sources other than the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't go into any detail as to, first of all, how they got there uh, and what their life was. But we know from other sources that only the educated and the uh, technically advanced people were taken there in the first place. So they were not used as slave digging ditches. They were more as indentured servants. Which we here in the United States uh, had indentured servants uh, for many years. They were treated reasonably well, uh, but were not free to go off and do their own thing. All right. Now, the one thing that we do know, again, from other sources... We do know from one of the other sources that 
this is the time when the synagogues were to be developed. Up until the conquer of Jerusalem or Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, there were no synagogues. The only place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. And that wasn't something that God made. That was something that was established by uh, King David way back in the 10th century. Good morning, Elisa, and welcome. Uh, that was something established by David back in the 10th century. And from there, they went to the whole idea of the judges and then the prophets, all right, uh, and then the monarchy. So, in Babylon, the people were free to some degree to do some of their own things. And one of the things that they did was they gathered in home groups to study the scriptures, primarily the book of, De- book of Deuteronomy, which eventually became the basis for modern Judaism. All right. So the whole idea of these small home study groups was the basis and the beginning of the synagogue structure, which was carried back then to Jerusalem later. The idea of, well, I'm getting ahead of the story. When they finally did get back to Jerusalem, of course, the temple was destroyed, never to be well, never in their lifetime, actually began to be rebuilt right away, but it wasn't really completed for several years afterwards. So the whole idea of uh, worship in the temple had to be sidestepped for a number of years. And so the whole idea of the synagogue structure And synagogues are not temples. Synagogues are house of prayer and study. And that is true today. Even though you may see on uh, various uh, Jewish houses of worship saying temple this and temple that, technically that is not correct. And if challenged, they will admit it. But it gives a little bit more prominence to other people. Uh, but they know the difference. There, the temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, never to be rebuilt. And that had a whole different meaning, which we'll get into at another time. Uh, but the temple, the Solomon's temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., and was not rebuilt until around the end of the 6th century or the beginning of the 5th century. All right, And that was done by Nehemiah. Um, and so if you read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll get sort of the continuation of the history of the Jewish people of that time period. Okay. But keep in mind, the synagogues were a very important
important structure and still is uh, to the Jewish people today. Okay. Now, getting back to some of the other things, I want to go back to uh, chapter 40 so that we can pick up and carry on um, in some logical manner. Okay? <clears throat> chapter 40, of course, is the dividing chapter between Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2, or 1st and 2nd Isaiah, alright? And it is the, it starts out with the announcement, and we don't know exactly what form, but the idea that the people of uh, the Israelites, that is, are going to be released and so the prophet is announcing that in a way. God is saying through the prophets, comfort, give comfort to my people, says the Lord God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has ended and that her guilt is expiated. Now that is a meaning in itself. Her service or her sentence you know, if you substitute the word sentence, it has a little bit more meaning for us today. And her guilt has been expiated. The reason that the people were carted off to Babylon was because of their disobedience to God and refusing to listen to him and to follow his plan of salvation. But God being a loving God, and overlooking a lot of things, uh, is accepting them back, not because they are so great and wonderful, but because he wants to further his plan of salvation. It says, uh, her guilt is expiated, meaning her guilt, meaning the people of Jerusalem or Judah. And she has received from the hand of the Lord double all her sins. Double, we're not quite sure exactly what is meant by that, except that the measure of punishment, that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which is probably the uh, reference to the double, was probably more than what was needed, but it was needed in a way to get their attention. Okay. It says now, and we're going to a different subject. A voice proclaims in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill made low. The rugged land shall be a plain, the rough country, a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, this has two meanings. The trip back from Babylon to Jerusalem would be a very difficult trip because of the territory that they had to go through. All right? Part desert, part mountainous, etc. Okay? 
but God was going to make it easier for them by clearing the way physically and making sure that it was safe because there were bandits in those days just as there are today. Now, that also has a spiritual meaning that they had to clear out of their mind and their heart all of those things that were not in accordance with the teachings of God that they learned through the book of Deuteronomy. It's important that, and, and this, this idea is carried through all of chapter 41, and we'll get to it more to it later. But that's what I want you to do, is to see that God is telling them they had to make some changes and adjustments. It says, a voice says, proclaim. And the prophet says, what shall I proclaim? And the voice of God again says, all flesh is grass and all their loyalty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower wilts. All their loyalty. Remember, keep that in mind. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about grass. He's not talking about people. He's talking about their loyalty, their allegiance to him is very weak. And it has to be strengthened. It says, the grass withers and the flower wilts when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Yes, the people is grass. The grass withers, the flowers wilt. But the word of our Lord stands forever. And so they have to believe in what God is saying. Because one of the things that they were looking at, they remember that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, nearly a thousand years before this, there was sort of a trick play. Remember, Pharaoh let them go until they got out into the desert, and then he sent his men out to recapture them. And of course, you remember that story there. All right. These people remember this. And so they are concerned that they're going to be led down the garden path, you might say, only to be slaughtered out in the desert. Cry out, do not fear, the Lord says. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your Lord. Here come, whoops. Yeah, all right. Here comes with power the Lord God, who rules by his strong arm. Here is his reward with him, his recompense before him. Like a shepherd he feeds his flock, and in his arms he gathers the lambs, carrying them in his bosom, leading the ewes with care. And that's, of course, also, it shows again the father figure, as I mentioned last week. And the care that God is proclaiming to his people so that they do not worry. Of course, this is applied to Jesus and the Good Shepherd um, symbol that we read in one of the Gospels. If you went back to some of this other here, prepare a way of the Lord, that's often applied to 
John uh, the Baptist, who was um, what we call one of the last of the old-time prophets. All right, But it had to have meaning to these people here today. So that's why I'm not saying too much about what it meant way down the road. Okay. In the next session, we're still on chapter 40. In the next session, verse 12 here. Who has measured with his palm the waters, or marked off the heavens with a span, held in his fingers the dust of the earth, etc.? And I'm going on and on. The point that is being made here is that in Babylon, many of the people sort of drifted over into the uh, pagan gods that the Babylonians had worshipped. And one of the things that they would do is they would carve little images, in other words, like little dolls out of stone or wood or ivory in some cases. And that became a rather common thing, uh, even though they worshipped the one true God uh, just to be safe. They also wanted to play with some of these pagan gods too, all right? And of course, some of the younger people who never really knew anything about Jerusalem or Judah or some of the history, uh, that was all they knew was these pagan gods. And so God, through the prophet, is telling them that's one of the things they have to get rid of entirely because there is only one God and he is the ruler of all creation. It says, whom did he consult? Meaning, there is no one beside God to gain knowledge. Who taught him the path of judgment? Or showed him the way of understanding? See, the nation's count as a drop in the bucket. As a wisp of cloud on the scales. The coastlands weigh no more than a speck. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor animals be enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as not, as nothing and void he counts them. It's because he alone is the creator, and therefore he has the right and the power to rule. And of course, one of the greatest showings of that power and rule is the fact that Cyrus is being used by God in a good way to allow these people to re- be released. Remember, he used Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the north and the south, uh, which was, again, God's way of punishing the people earlier. And so now he's reversing that uh, through Cyrus and the Persians. To whom can you liken God? With what likeness can you confront him? An idol? An artisan casteth with smith, plates it with gold, fits it with silver chains? Is mulberry wood the offering? A skilled artisan picks out a wood that will not rot? seeks to set up for himself the idol that will not totter? Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Was it not you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the founding of the earth the one who is enthroned above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch, who stretches out the heavens like a veil and spreads them out like a tent. I don't want to go on and on because we want to move on, but you get the idea, okay? God is in control. And you Israelites, you have to get rid of all of those ideas about worshiping pagan gods. Let's move on to chapter 41. Did that help you, uh, Chad? The liberator of Israel. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. Let the earth, let the nations renew their strength. Let them draw near and speak. Let us come together for judgment. For who has stirred up from the east the champion of justice? And this again is Cyrus. Cyrus conquered uh, the Babylonians, and not Nebuchadnezzar, because he was long gone. It was his successor, uh, his grandson. I forgot his name. I forgot his name offhand. It's not that important. Okay. Uh, who has stirred up from the east the champion of justice and summoned him to be his attendant? See, God has summoned Cyrus the Great to be his attendant, his partner, all right, or his instrument on allowing the Israelites to return to Judah. And this became the small remnant. The word remnant is a very sacred word to the people of, well, all, all Jewish people even today. The word remnant signifies uh, that group of people that were first released from Egypt a thousand years before and now again from Babylon. Babylon and the exodus from Babylon is just as important, if not more so, than the release of the Israelites uh, from Egypt back at the time of Moses. And that's for several reasons. One, there has been more development within the Jewish faith and greater structure. And so when it was almost wiped out by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, God saved a small remnant because he wanted again to get his plan of salvation restarted. says, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. The first and the last is an interesting uh, combination because it is repeated in the book of Revelation. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, is what it is said in the book of Revelation. The coastlands see and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach, they come on. 
Each one helps his neighbor, and one says to the other, Courage! The woodworker encourages the goldsmith, the one who beats with the hammer. That is, <coughs> go, uh, the... Hmm? Blacksmith, yes. Uh, him who strikes an anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, then fastening it with nails so it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I have taken from the ends of the earth and summoned from its far-off places, to whom I have said, you are my servant, I chose you, I have not rejected you, do not fear, I am with you, do not be anxious, for I am your God. And I will strengthen you and I will help you. Alright. Again, Jesus is, I mean, excuse me. God is speaking through the prophet to the people, uh, the Jewish people that are still in Babylon now here. Because they are very concerned about going back. First of all, they're traveling through dangerous territory. And it is going to be rough. They don't know what to expect. But they do know from prior uh, writings that Jerusalem has been virtually destroyed and the temple has been destroyed. So they really don't know what they're going back to. But nevertheless, most of them are happy to go back. If you... If you go to... Psalm 137, and you don't have to do this, I'll just read it for you here. It says, By the streams of Babylon we sat and wept when remembered Zion. On the aspens of that land we hung up our harps. Uh, though there are captors, though there are captors asked us, uh, for the lyrics of our songs. And our despoilers urged us to be joyous. Sing to us the songs of Zion. How could we sing in the, so, the song of the Lord in a foreign land? For if I forget you, Jerusalem, my right hand, um, may my right hand be forgotten. May my tongue cleave to my pellet if I remember you not. If I place not Jerusalem ahead of my joy. Remember, O Lord, against the children of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, when they said, Raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you destroyer, happy the man who shall repay you the evil you have done us. Happy the man who shall seize and smash little ones against the rock. And of course, that's what they are praying that God will do, and He did. That is uh, Psalm one thirty-seven. Okay. And there, there are others um, in there that refer to or were written in remembrance of the times in Babylon.
Now we're going to a slightly different subject, because as I've said several times, and it is worth repeating, because the prophet is trying to get the people to remember that God has punished, and some, and in some cases wiped out, any nation that has repressed or um, harmed or conquered uh, the Jewish people. And that is because the Jewish people are the beginning of God's plan of salvation and the implementation of it up through and including uh, the time just before Jesus Christ. Okay. Or up actually including that time as well. Um, at the top of page 110 it says, I will uphold you with my victories victorious right hand yes all and I'm inserting the word nations here yes all nations shall be put to shame and disgrace who vent their anger against you those shall be as nothing and perish who offer resistance you shall seek but not find those who strive against you they shall be as nothing at all who do battle with you. For I am the Lord your God, who grasps your right, your right hand. It is I who say, do not fear. I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you maggot Israel. Now, he's not talking to people. He's not talking to a person, a specific person named Jake, Jacob. Uh, he's talking to the people in general. Okay. <clears throat> I will help you, oracle of the Lord. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. This phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is unique to the prophet Isaiah. Right? And it describes God, the one true God, the Father, in a very holy way. And they still, the Jewish people still use that uh, as a way of addressing God because they do not use the word God. If you find something that is uh, even recently uh, written, for example, I just read a book uh, that was a dialogue, you might say, between the Pope, the present Pope, and a Jewish rabbi, but it was written long before uh, he became Pope, all right? It's interesting, they have the Pope's discussion, and then they have the rabbi's discussion. Wherever the Pope speaks and refers to God, it's spelled out, G-O-D. Wherever the rabbi speaks and it's spelled out, it's spelled g dash. Why? And in the first, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's a mistake, or that's a, a typo error. And then I remembered that the Jewish people, when they are particularly Orthodox Jewish, they will not write out or speak the word God. They will, and that's, of course, how the word Lord began to be used by the Jewish people 
as a substitute for the word for the word God. Okay, so even in this modern printing, it comes out G dash. I mean G dash D. No, oh no, no, no. Jehovah is a Jehovah is Christian. Yeah, not Jewish. They might say Yahweh. Yeah, they might might say Yahweh. Uh, but the word Jehovah is a misprint um, or a misusage, you might say, of the word Yahweh. Okay, it comes from that. But you will not see in any legitimate uh, Bible, you will not see the word Jehovah whatsoever, anywhere. Okay. All right, let's go on. Are you beginning to see What's going on here now? That's important. Yes. I uh, see. I think I left off at chapter, uh, verse four or five down there. Um, it says, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. The coastlands see and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and they come on. Each one uh, helps his neighbor and says to the other, courage. Oh, and I guess I did read some of that here. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and summoned from its far-off places, to whom have I said you are my servant, to whom else is the way this should be read, to whom else uh, have I said you are my servant I chose you I have not rejected you do not fear I am with you do not be anxious for I am your God I will strengthen you and I will help you this again is to alleviate the fears that uh, they have in traveling back to Jerusalem not only the fears of the traveling but the fears of what are they going to see when they get there. Remember that not all of the people uh, of the southern kingdom were taken to Babylon. The old, the infirm, and little children who couldn't do them any good were left there. And so you had those people growing up and now you're having all the people that were taken to Babylon coming back. Can you see the friction and the problems created? You're having people who look forward to going back and resuming their careers and uh, their lifestyle and so forth, moving in on people who never left. And, of course, you have new people coming in who never were in Israel before, and they didn't know what to expect. So you had all of these tensions uh, develop. Nehemiah talks about them in his book. And it's interesting if you have time to go to that. Okay. Moving over here to uh, verse 21, is. Uh, sort of the second trial, you might say, is present your case, says the Lord. Bring forward your argument, says the king of Jacob. 
Let them draw. Now, king of Jacob doesn't mean king of a place. It means king over Jacob and his people. Okay. Let them draw near and foretell us. What is it that shall happen? What are the things of long ago? Tell us that we may reflect on them and know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. This is, of course, what are they going to face when they get to Jerusalem. Tell us what is to be in the future and we may know that we may know that you are gods. And these, of course, are against the pagan gods. Do something, good or evil, that will put us in awe and in fear. Why are you nothing? And your work is not to choose you as an abomination. In the, in the middle of page 112, in the commentary, I would like to read this because it's very important. is understood in the light of the total argument made in this fourth section, it is most likely that the servant that is being spoken of here is Judah, fulfilling its destiny to be the light to the nations. In other words, God, through the prophet, is putting down all of these surrounding nations and their pagan idols because he is building up the Jewish people who have always been his instrument as a light to the nations. Of course, this is an idealized picture of the potential of the restored community. But the whole of this fourth section of Isaiah is a powerfully constructed and expressed argument by the prophet who is trying to persuade a thoroughly demoralized people that their God is about to do something wondrous for them and that they have a decisive role in their own restoration. Of course, that repeats what I've already said about the fact that God is using Cyrus and all of these other nations uh, in a way that he used the Assyrians earlier, but in a good way. Now he's releasing the Israelites um, to return to their destiny and their role in God's overall plan of salvation. Okay. Forty two is often read um, by people who are not familiar with some of the background, and they'll automatically say, Oh, this applies to Jesus, and forget that it had to apply to the people of Isaiah's time, because Without that, it would have had no meaning to those people. So it says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased. Upon him I have put my spirit. 
He shall bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, not shout, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimming uh, burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow dim or be bruised until he establishes justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait, will wait for his teaching. Now, a lot of people will say, well, how does that apply to the people of Jerusalem? Well, remember, collectively, they are looked upon as God's servant. And this might be, as uh, we read earlier, an idealized version of what God is expecting of them. But nevertheless, we have to apply this uh, to the people uh, of Israel because of their mission and their purpose and what God is expecting of them. Now, that's the earthly uh, interpretation. If we look at it spiritually, the only person that could fulfill that is Jesus Christ, obviously. But as I've said many times, and you'll hear it probably many times more, the Bible is written on both the earthly level and the spiritual level, particularly the Old Testament. And this is one of those cases. On the earthly level, the servant is the people of Israel. All right. On the spiritual level, this can only be filled totally by Christ. Well, uh, that's a good point, Jose. Jose just asked, when I refer to Israel, I'm referring to the people back in the 6th century, 5th and 6th century B.C. Yes, but God is still expecting the people of Israel today to be the light to the nations. Unfortunately, they have totally abandoned any personal relationship with God. Their relationship is more of an ideology of the law rather than a worship of God in a personal way. So they couldn't fulfill it in the way that God is expecting of them. All right, But we haven't done a very good job either. Okay? We haven't done a very good job. Okay. The whole idea of the spiritual idea is a just and a just social and economic country. And we are getting further and further away of it being just and social. The economy is being driven into the ground, you might say, by laws, and I'm not talking about any one person, the fact that democracy in itself is crumbling because it is building so many laws to control this and that and something else that is closing in on itself and choking itself. It's choking itself 
in the way of the, the freedom that gave us to build this great country in the beginning. And as you know, this country was built on Christian principles. But we were free, really, to experiment. That doesn't mean everything was rosy and, and ginger peachy or whatever. In the beginning, we had problems. But we have more and more problems as politicians of all kinds in all places try to make their mark by putting laws on top of laws on top of laws to the point where we are being choked. I don't want to get too much into the politics, but um, it kind of stirs me up, as you can see. <laughs> The whole idea here, again, on an earthly level, the servant is Israel. Okay? And this might be a very idealized uh, version of it, but this is what God is expecting of it in the long run. Um, I, I want to go over this again. The servant of the Lord. Here is my servant whom I uphold. And then if you go over to verse 4, it says, He will not grow dim or be bruised until he establishes justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait for his teaching. Thus says the God, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretches them out, who spread out the earth and its produce, who gives breath to its people, and speak to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you for justice. I have grasped you by my by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, the light for the nations or a light to the nations. That's repeated over and over and over and again, as I said before, one of the great documents of Vatican II, the Constitution on the Church, the official title in English is the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, but the official title of that in Latin is Lumen Gentium, which means the light of the nations, or light to the nations, okay? And the church should be or is designated as the current light to the nations. He constantly uses the metaphor um, the coastlands. Uh, all the people surrounding Israel, I think some of them were inland, right? Uh, well, that's where most of the people were at, at the time, the coastlands. Except the Jewish people, yeah. They lived in, their, well, that's true, I mean, the Hebrew. So he's talking about coastlands and he's referring to the Israel. Yes. Yeah. The coastlands of Israel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, when California was settled, where did they settle? On the coast. Yeah. Okay. They didn't know Roseville in those days. <laughs> Okay. 
Let's go over to chapter, uh, page 114, verse 10. The Lord's purpose for Israel. Sing to the Lord a new song. This phrase is used many, many times in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms. Most of the Psalms were written to be sung. Most of the Psalms were written uh, for ceremonial purposes, not as personal or private prayer, uh, even though that's what eventually they became um, to be used for. That is not what they were originally developed for. Once again, in history, the Psalms predate Babylon? Uh, some of them, some of them. They began around the time of David, who encouraged the writing of many of the Psalms. But many of them predate um, Babylon, but not all. Okay. And we have no idea because none of them have any dates. Okay. Now, we, we do know by what is said in some of the Psalms as to what they refer to. And one of the Psalms, um, Psalm 51, which is a penitential psalm, and it is a meditation on the sins of King David and his forgiveness. A lot of people, particularly uh, the fundamentalist Christians, say that David wrote that. But if you go to the last stanza, it talks about the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. Well, at David's time, the walls were still standing. So David couldn't have written that, at least the last stanza. So when Isaiah says, sing to the Lord a new song, he's probably quoting... One or more of the songs. One or more of the songs. Yes. Yeah. The Lord says, uh, sing a new song, <clears throat> his praise from the ends of the earth. Let the sea and what fills it resound, the coastlines. Now, this is a poem, a song. Don't see, if, I mean, you know, it's not narrative here. The coastlines and those who dwell in them, let the wilderness and its cities cry out. The villages where Cater dwells, let the inhabitants of Sela exult and shout from the Top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord and utter his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes forth like a warrior, like a man of war he stirs up his fury, he shouts out his battle cry against his enemies, and he shows his might. What he's doing here, here, is really uh, encouraging, this is the prophet now, encouraging the people to look in a positive way of what God is trying to do for them. Okay? And to give praise and, and uh, glory to God, even though they are not experiencing all of this as yet, they will. For a long time, a long time is the 50 or 60 years in Babylon, I have kept silence because 
it wasn't until the people finally realized why they were in Babylon in the first place. And then they sought forgiveness. Remember, when they went there, they went because of their sinfulness. And they couldn't understand why God let them down. It was like, well, gee, Lord, you know, you promised to protect us. Why didn't you protect us against the Babylonians? Why did you bring us here? And it took them years to figure this out. But finally, through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel and the book of Deuteronomy, they finally came to their senses. And that's through the efforts of these little synagogues or these little house uh, prayer meetings that they developed in Babylon. And they finally read the book of Deuteronomy and realized, because Deuteronomy was written about the same time as the northern kingdom was going through its struggles with the Assyrians back in the 8th or last latter part of the ninth century, beginning of the 8th century. But it was not accepted up there because the people didn't like what it said. And it was brought to the southern kingdom when the northern kingdom was conquered. The southern people didn't want that either. They didn't like what it said because it implied rules and restrictions. But luckily, through God's love and maneuvering and conniving in some ways, he got the people to take it to Babylon. And through the prophet Isaiah, he finally got them to see the light. And that is when they they began to ask for forgiveness. And God then again began to speak to them. But as it says right here in the top of page 114 on the right side, for a long time I kept silent. Well, he kept silent because they ignored him and would not do anything. If you go to Psalm 81, talking about ignoring, whew. Yes. In this introduction of Isaiah, I was looking for where the sun in some country. It says that this is on page six in the introduction, and someone in the middle said, which cites Isaiah more often than any book of the Hebrew Bible except the book of Psalms. So that means the book of Psalms is more used than the than Isaiah, which almost covers all of the first reading in the yeah, yeah. What Hosea is saying, what Jose, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> That's all right. It's a good, it's a good slip. <laughs> all right. Excuse what Jose is saying here is that uh, in the beginning of this book, the writer quotes the fact that uh, the only book of the Old Testament that is quoted more elsewhere 
then Isaiah is the book of Psalms. In other words, the book of Psalms is referred to many, many times in the New Testament. And it is the only one that is quoted most more often in the New Testament than Isaiah. Isaiah comes next, okay? And that is partly because of the things that are said in this book that apply to us today and applied to people all down through history. Much of the old other books of the Old Testament uh, sort of are outdated in many ways. Uh, their usefulness has become outdated. But what Isaiah is saying and what the Psalms are saying as well as Proverbs uh, and a few others are still very much applicable to today. Let's go on here. Uh, there's a few other important things here on page 114 at near the bottom. Uh, the commentary part says the prophet recognizes to whom he is speaking. His audience is made up of people in shock. People still coping with the loss of the political, social, economic, and religious institutions that gave them identity. Identity as a sovereign nation was extremely important to the Israelites or the Jewish people. And that is why they wanted a king in the first place way back at the time of David. It says here, What is worse is that these people fail to recognize that they are responsible for this loss. In other words, their predicament in uh, Babylon. The prophet calls the people of Judah blind and deaf. These handicaps prevent them from recognizing their true standing before God. God loves them because they are his creation. God does not like what they've done and the way they've turned out thus far. But, you know, for us, uh, if we have had children who we loved and nourished and so forth and brought along till they became young adults and then they did things that we didn't approve of, we still love them and that hurts even more. Um, your love really never dies or never is dissolved even in spite of the problems that they may have caused. They fail to see that the loss of their state, national dynasty, temple, and land was due to their refusal to walk in God's ways. That is, maintain a social uh, society built on justice. They fail to hear the message of the prophets who announced God's judgment on their society and its values. But now God is giving them another chance. And that is what we will see. But unfortunately, as I said, in these little house 
synagogues that are beginning to be developed here. Remember, there is no liturgy, there's no sacrifice in any of them, and even in today's synagogues, uh, there is liturgy of some kind, uh, not universally uh, coordinated as we have in the Catholic Church, but there are liturgies which are developed by the individual rabbis. But most of the synagogues are still considered houses of prayer and study, not houses of worship, which is a big difference. That has been abolished along with the priesthood, the priesthood that we hear about at the time of Jesus Christ in the Gospels or any of the earlier. That developed at this same time as the synagogue program, okay? Um, And since there was no more monarchy, the high priest was the official leader, or I should perhaps say unofficial, but recognized leader of the Jewish people. And that went on for nearly 500 years, until 70 A.D., when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed again. And then the priesthood was wiped out. Are you saying that you have to have a church to worship? That was the rule in Judaism. You had to have a temple in order to hold legitimate sacrifices. And that was a rule imposed by King David. You could have worship without sacrifice. You could have worship without sacrifice. Yes. The synagogue can have worship today. Yes. But you say most of them are just prayer. Prayer and study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They started out as being study halls, you might say. Uh, study halls. Uh Yes, but that is technically that's not correct. But you know, what difference does it make? Yeah. Uh, going down to the middle of page one fifteen, and this is something I've said before, but bears uh, repeating. The only explanation, and that is for the chastisement that is uh, in the scripture above, the only explanation that the prophet gives is that God loves the people of Israel and will do anything to save Israel from itself. God assures Judah that the exiles will gather from wherever they have been scattered, even though they still suffer from handicaps. The prophet affirms that God is willing to allow the conquest of nations like Egypt and Ethiopia in exchange, that is, the conquest of Egypt and Ethiopia by Cyrus the Great and the Persians, and later, of course, the the Greeks, um, in exchange for Jerusalem's liberation. So how does this relate to the prophet's contention that God's chosen people is to be a light to the nations? Well, that's the whole objective of his plan of salvation. 
The significance of the prophet's concept of Israel's election is the one principal problem in interpreting this book. Even the New Testament's more consistent inclusiveness does not solve the problem. There God does not give up Egypt, Ethiopia, or any nation for Israel's salvation. But God does not spare Jesus so that all people might be saved. And the reason here is that God's plan of salvation is established through the Jewish people. And the whole, uh, the whole idea is that they would establish a foundation and a base of information, of style, <coughs> of worship. And then Christ would come along and be the sacrificial lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind, including including the Jewish people. But they totally disregarded that because they were not concerned with what God wanted, unfortunately. They were concerned with getting rid of the Romans so that they could be sovereign nation again. And that was not God's intent right from the beginning. And so they kind of ignored the personal relationship with God and set aside the whole idea of this ragtag man and his band of twelve being a representative of God or, God forbid, God himself. How could that, you know, that just didn't work into their expectations and their mindset. And so they rejected that and still reject it. In fact, now you've gotten to the point where Judaism has pretty much dismissed the whole idea of a Messiah. Again, they are more interested in keeping the laws, the ideology of worshiping the laws, rather than the God for whom those laws were a sign of worship. It's unfortunate. Um, And I think what we should do is pray on a regular basis uh, for the Jewish people to open up their mind and their heart to what God really intends for everyone. Well, they would like to But for one reason or other, God will not let them. And of course, neither will the Muslims, because Muslims are occupying the land on which that temple was built. Yeah. If you've ever been there, uh, it is a magnificent building uh, that's almost a thousand years old. When you get inside, it's a little different, though, because it's very well-used carpets uh, and rugs scattered here and there and so forth. And you have to take your shoes off to walk around in there. But people can, anyone can go in there. 
But no, the Jews cannot or will not be able to occupy that. And the reason being is the temple was God's way of giving them something concrete, you might say, pardon the expression, of his presence within them. What is that today? The Eucharist is what's God's presence within us, each one of us. We are not dependent on brick and mortar. We have the Eucharist. And that is the sign of God's presence among his people today. But the temple was destroyed in 70 AD again at the hands of the Romans who were God's instrument in destroying it because after 40 years from the time of Christ's death and resurrection, after 40 years of putting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to death and not accepting him, after 40 years of giving them time to come to their senses and they did not, God finally said, enough is enough and withdraws the first covenant. And the sign of the destruction of the temple was an indication of God's withdrawing the first covenant and his exclusive uh, or primary interest in the Jewish people as his instrument of salvation. That has now been transferred to the Catholic Church or the Christians, I should say. And so that will never be rebuilt. Well, yes, if you go, what Hosea, not Hosea, what Hosea is saying uh, is that the Catholic Church is the only one that's televising its worship service. No, if you go to Channel 40, the uh, TBN, which is Trinity Broadcasting Network, uh, you'll see a great deal of it. Okay. Yes, we have Channel 46 or Mother Angelica and uh, EWTN, and we have our own uh, Bishop's Radio Hour here, on which I have the privilege of being on several times. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes, we do have a lot of Catholic broadcasting, but we're not the only ones. Any other questions? I hope you're getting something out of this. Not only, again, the history of the Jewish people at that time period, but how it applies to us today. And again, it's really important that we pray for the Jewish people, that they finally uh, open up their mind and heart to what God is asking of them and all of us. Yes, uh, Louisa? Uh, yes, uh, what Louisa is saying is the Jewish people now are sovereign nation again, uh, but look what they've done with it. You know, they certainly aren't not alike to the nations uh, any more than they were 2,000 years ago. But they did very 
and it's interesting because I'm reading another book uh, by a Jewish rabbi who talks about that very thing, about there being a light to the nations, and I'm saying to you how misguided you are, or blind, really. And I think in many ways they're just as blind today as they were at the time of Christ. And that's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate because whenever you are confronted with something that you don't agree with, it's really uh, worthwhile finding out why you don't agree with so that you have a firm foundation on your objection to whatever it might be. There are many great saints and many great Catholic writers who started out as Protestants or other faiths or no faith trying to put down the Catholic Church and in doing so they have become Catholics themselves. Scott Hahn is one of the most popular writers of Catholic literature today. He was a Presbyterian minister. John Cardinal Newman was an Episcopalian uh, minister who tried to put down the Catholic Church and ended up becoming converted, becoming a priest, and now a cardinal. Or, of course, he's dead now, but even so. Uh, And there are many, but this goes for anything. If you have a strong bias against anything, Find out what is the basis for your bias so that you have something to explain to people. A lot of people will say, well, I don't agree with this. And you'll say, well, why? Well, I don't know. I just don't agree. (laughs) Well, you know, that doesn't really say much. Anyways, let's end this session with a prayer. Lord, help us to open our minds and our hearts. Regardless of what is said up here, regardless of what we read, help us really to understand, hear, and accept what you want us to hear and accept. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to you, that we are educated more by the Holy Spirit than anyone else. Give us the strength and the courage to set aside our own biases and our objections so that we really get to the core of truth. For you are the way and the truth and the life. So we thank you for this time together. And we just thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.